All right, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. His name is John Noltner, N-O-L-T-N-E-R, and he's publishing a book on September 21st, 2021. The title of that book is Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America. Very important book for these times, I'm sure. Uh, he, John Noltner is a photographer, author, and activist based in Minneapolis within the last year, not so much, but he's the founder and executive director for A Piece of My Mind, a multimedia arts project that uses portraits and personal stories to bridge divides and encourage dialogue around important issues. Through exhibits, workshops, lectures, and on-site studios, A Piece of My Mind leads transformative experiences that help a polarized world rediscover the common humanity that connects us. And you can go see that website at www.apomm.net again, www.apomm.net. And so John can talk about this book. So Mr. Noltner, are you there? I am. Hi, uh, William. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people, this is your first book is my understanding. So people who haven't heard your name, can you talk about your background, talk about your uh, multimedia project and um, what led you to write this book? It's a long question. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and and well done on my last name. Nobody ever says it right. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> um, this is actually our third book. The first two for a piece of my mind were self-published. Uh, this is our first book with a publisher. And so this is this is being brought out by Broadleaf Books out of Minneapolis. Um, but uh, the overall project, a piece of my mind, is something that I started about a dozen years ago, I'd spent my career as a freelance photographer, uh, shooting for national magazines and Fortune 500 companies, did a lot of travel photography um, around the United States and around the world. I think I probably photographed in about 38 countries uh, through my career. Um, and through that process, I started, you know, I encountered so many different kinds of people and I found beauty and wisdom in all of it. Um, as we were coming into the recession uh, back in 2008, 2009, I was increasingly frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue. You know, I was concerned about all of the things that ask us to look at what can separate us. And I wondered if there was something that I could do with my photography and storytelling instead to remember what connects us, to sort of rediscover that common humanity. Um, as luck would have it, the, um, the recession handed me some free time. Uh, <laughs> the, a lot of people, uh, not just you, a lot of people, right? Yeah, a lot Myself of people. included. It, 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 uh, yeah, it hit the world of freelance photography pretty hard, and my workload dropped quickly and dramatically. And um, if I was a better business person, I would have used that time to look for new clients. But instead, you know, my soul was a little bit hungry, and I wanted to to take that time to feed my soul. So I started, um, I started just interviewing people. We'd sit down, we'd do an hour long uh, recorded conversation. I would um, shoot a portrait because I'm a photographer. That's what I did. Uh, and we would, uh, we would combine those uh, stories and photographs. And so the first two books that we produced were really stories. Um, they were other people's stories. You know, it was simply a, a short profile an excerpt from the person's interview and a portrait. First book was all stories out of Minnesota where I started. Second book. Yeah, there's the first book. Gotcha. Um, second book, uh, that color one, if you scroll a little higher on that screen, um, there it is. 
Uh, second book was uh, stories from a 40,000 mile journey across the United States. This new one that's coming out in September, Portraits of Peace, that one, that one really is my story. You know, it's it's more of a narrative. There's less photography. There's more words. And uh, and it's really a memoir. It's about my experience of encountering difference, uh, of going outside of my comfort zone, of understanding where my blind spots are, uh, learning how to be a better ally and continuing to um, to see the beauty and wisdom that's all around us. Gotcha. So what did do you, does this start, is this book the outgrowth of the pandemic? Like the first book was an outgrowth of the financial crisis? Oh, um, no, it's, uh, it started a little sooner than that. You know, this had been bouncing around in my head um, for years. I think I started writing it um, probably about two years before the pandemic. Um, actually received the book offer from Broadleaf right in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, so, so I guess you could say the pandemic gave me the time to put the, the finishing touches on it. Gotcha. And I mean, tell the story. I mean, these individual stories are in, in your prior first two books. What are, what are you trying to get across in this most recent book? Yeah. So the, the most recent book, like I said, is really my, my journey of exploration. Um, what I want to encourage people to do one uh, is to listen deeply. You know, that has been my process for building this project. That has been my process for engaging with these folks that I meet out on the road. Um, so to listen deeply, to challenge our expectations, you know, because each of these stories, when I encounter somebody, we always meet somebody and we go in with certain preconceived notions. And, and my process has been to try to set those aside to try to hear beyond my expectations, to try to understand the subtleties and complexities of, of a fuller story. So that's the second goal. The third goal really is to encourage people to stay at the table, uh, to, to continue in dialogue, to continue building relationship. You know, as, as individuals and as a nation, I worry that we're leaning uh, really quickly into conflict. We're leaning into contention as opposed to compassion. Um, and I really want to encourage people to be, to, to assume the best, to be willing to return to the table, to be willing to do the hard work of building relationships that um, that are gonna weave a stronger social fabric. And what's it like, like, I mean, it seems like we're in such a technology, technological era with our phones and that interpersonal element. Even if you go to a restaurant, people are on their phones with four people, what's it like to actually just sit down and listen and talk without a lot of biases? Yeah, you know what? It's 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 a really uh, rare and lovely thing to be able to push aside all of the distractions, to be able to just engage in a full conversation, um, and uh, and really deeply listen to people. You know, these are these are almost without exception people that I've never met before. I do have most of these interviews coordinated before I leave home because I want to make sure that I'm productive. Um, and so, so things are scheduled and lined up, but um, we've really not had an encounter. We've really not had an engagement before. So um, like I say, these are like hour long conversations. And when people feel like they're really being listened to, when people feel 
uh, deeply heard and respected in the process. That's a powerful experience. And I'll say that um, probably in 70 to 80% of these conversations, one or both of us wind up in tears at some point, just because it's a really powerful human connection to be able to have that sort of conversation. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's just so rare just to sit down and actually talk to somebody for a long period of time, some random person you don't really know. I mean, Although you are doing it now, William, so I, well, I'd say we're off to a good start. Okay, well, hopefully <laughs> I won't break down in tears by the end. Well, yeah, you, let's aim for that. Okay, you, uh, you asked the question, why peace at the intro to your book? Why, why are we striving for that goal? Yeah, well, you know, the, so so I guess I didn't really clearly say this. The, the core question around this whole body of work is what does peace mean to you? Now, that's not the question we lead with, and it's not the only question we ask. But But the conversations are sort of built around that. And really, it's because uh, for me, most people I've met in the world, um, I think, would welcome a little bit more peace into their lives. You know, whether it's their immediate family or their their larger community or or, or the world at large, uh, even my friends who serve in the U.S. military, I think, would prefer to stay home with their families whenever possible. Um, so peace is this word that we toss around really loosely, um, but I'm not sure that we're very good at making it. We're not very good at getting peace. And so you'll have an activist who might flash, uh, you know, hold up a sign and say, give peace a chance, but they can't get along with their immediate family members. Right. You know, you'll have, a, you'll have a high school student that might flash the peace sign when they walk down the hallway, but then they'll form into cliques and bully their own classmates. So it's, there's a disconnect between what we say we value and how we live our day-to-day -day lives. And that was, that's sort of a fascinating human exploration to me from a sociological standpoint. Um, but also I think that we, we need to understand that, that our actions um, matter, that, that if we say we value these things, that we actually apply that to how we live our day-to-day -day lives. And, and not only that, but the question of peace, even though it's a really simple question, it, it opens the door to all sorts of other really interesting complex conversations around race, and social justice and gender uh, and uh, economic uh, inequalities, international policy, it really, it really sort of blows open the gates for people to have a conversation about what's close to their heart. Uh, and that that's really what was interesting to me. Right. So it doesn't just mean, it doesn't mean personal peace too, either. It means political peace. I mean, peace has all of its connotations. I mean, do you, when you're talking to people do you, are you asking them those questions? What does peace mean to you? How do you work towards peace in your life? Do you ask all the people you meet that? Yeah, yeah. Though there, there is a certain set of questions that I always bring into the conversation. What does peace mean to you? Uh, how do you work towards it in your life? What are some of the obstacles that get in the way? Tell me a time when you've seen a great example of peace in your own life. You know, that's where it really starts going from the theoretical to to the grassroots sort of practical level. And I find that interesting. But we we don't start the conversations there. I literally start every conversation by saying, tell me your name and where we're, where, where on earth we're sitting today. And the second question is, if I didn't know anything about you, what do you want me to know? Because I want people to come to the table with they're better angels. I want people to come to the table feeling recognized and seen and heard. And that's not up to me to define what that is. 
you know, if I, I've gone into conversations that I thought were going to be about the environment, but they wound up being about uh, domestic abuse. I've gone into conversations that I thought were going to be about faith, but they wound up being about same-sex marriage. I've gone into conversations that I thought were going to be about business, but they've wound up being uh, about um, about the environment. And so I want to give people the agency and the empowerment to take the conversations where they want. Um, the other thing that does is most of these people I interview are not you know, these are not celebrities. These are not media darlings. And they're not always people who uh, are comfortable being interviewed. So some people you can walk in and you can see in their body language that they're a little nervous. They don't want to do this wrong. They, they, they don't quite know where it's going to go. When I open the conversation, giving them the ability to steer it, um, they start to relax and they start to understand that they're going to have agency. And that sort of empowerment really opens a space where some 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 rich conversations can unfold. I mean, and it's really kind of a piece of Americana when you're really talking to the average person on the street that's such a rainbow of different ethnicities and genders and ages. I mean, do you, I feel like this is, I mean, you title the chapter American Stories. Do you get the impression that you're really taking a snapshot of America at at these times in, in your different books? Yeah, you know, that's that's really my hope. That's really my goal. Uh, there's there's a, an oral historian by the names of Studs, by the name of Studs Terkel. Yeah, yeah and, and he's always been a hero of mine. And someday if somebody describes me as Studs Terkel with a camera, I'll be thrilled to death. Um, but, but Studs was brilliant at being able to, um, to, 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 see that rich fabric, um, these individual stories that when you put them together form the fabric of who we are. And that's that's always been my goal for this project, to, to see more completely who we are as a society. And so I've been very intentional about inviting Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, agnostic voices. I've been really intentional about including uh, black and Hispanic and, and, um, and Asian voices into the project as I bring. So, so I've got these four traveling exhibits as well that we bring around the country to share these stories in public spaces. And we use them to, to build public dialogue around issues. Um, as I've done that, there are times when people have come up to me and pointed out where I have failed in that broad net that I've tried to cast. So I had an Ojibwe woman walk up to me and say, hey, I don't see any indigenous voices in this series. Where, where am I? And when I hear that, I have to, I have to recognize that, uh, that omission. And then it's incumbent upon me to be intentional to invite those voices in. You know, a mother who had a child with a disability who said, hey, I don't see anyone with a physical disability here. Why am I not? important enough to include. And so then I have to be intentional to include those voices. And that's how it becomes more complete. And that's how it becomes more representative. What I hope is that everybody can see themselves reflected in some way in this series, feel comfortable, and then move on and explore some other perspectives as well. Well, when you say reflective, what are the commonalities you find even from this very diverse group of people like we have our own little all I find that all people have their own small 
social circles they're operating in, whether mm -hmm. it's work or outside of work. So you just don't see, maybe won't see an indigenous person or somebody who's handicapped. What kind of some commonalities did you find when you took a snapshot of all those different people? Yeah, you know, I think you're right, William. I think we all live in a bubble and uh, we, we work with people that are like us. We live with people that are like us. We, we surround ourselves and, and travel in circles that are very like ourselves. And pretty soon we're so immersed in the bubble that we don't even know what we don't know. Uh, and so for me, you know, part of this learning process is to educate myself because every time I sit down and, and have one of these interviews, I wind up learning a little bit more about the world, understanding it a little bit better. Um, you know, there are there are all sorts of themes that I've encountered, but the one um, the one profoundly resonant theme that I see over and over again um, is that people want to be seen, heard, and valued. You know, and when when they have that sense of acknowledgement, when they have that sense of recognition, and when they have that sense of value that washes over a lot of other things and when you look at most of the social struggles we have in this country i think uh, that you could dissect them and you could see that at the root of it is people who don't feel seen people who don't feel heard and people who don't feel valued you know and so that if, if i had to choose one overarching theme that i see in this series that would be it it's just not just somebody just to listen and really value them. It seems like the, the, the communication, the technology blurbs and not, you know, superficial. When was the last time you've really sat down across some, somebody and talked for 15 or 30 minutes? I literally personally can't really remember too many of those in the recent months, you know. Well, so, yeah. And so especially with um, with the pandemic, right, that's been exacerbated. Uh, that what what I hope we can learn and what I've learned certainly through this process of engaging across difference, um, I hope we can take this lesson away from the, the pandemic, that we are all a little bit more vulnerable than we thought we were. You know, things things changed on a dime for us. Things, things changed quickly for a lot of people I know. Um, and the other... Uh, lesson I hope we can take away from the pandemic is that we're all more connected than we ever realized. You know, whoever yeah. the truck driver is that brings the toilet paper from the plant to the store, um, if he's sick and he can't work, um, suddenly there's a toilet paper shortage in the entire country. You know, that's a that, that's sort of a silly anecdote, but but seriously, we are all connected in ways that that we don't often take the time to acknowledge. Right. I mean, there was a lot. lot I mean, the pandemic really changed people's. It gave them pause to really think about what's kind of important, but also their connections, at least to their internal social circle. I don't remember mixing with a lot of people. Um, but right now you are you're kind of on the road. Right. So um, are you finding what are you finding when you're kind of driving around? Are you still kind of interviewing? I know this book is fairly recent, but did you interview people while you were on the road? Yeah, in fact, that's been the goal. So um, October of last year, uh, my wife Karen and I sold our home in Bloomington, Minnesota, where we lived for 20 years. You know, our kids are our kids are grown. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, and, and, and we bought an RV and we hit the road. Um, I'm not sure that um, 
launching into RV life in the middle of a pandemic is probably the wisest thing in the world. But we we figured we could be just as safe um, isolating in a trailer as we could in a house. We figured that we could. Um, let me back up a little bit and tell you that during the pandemic, um, I live in Minneapolis. So our house is 11 and a half miles south of where George Floyd was killed. Um, besides these long form interviews with a piece of my mind, I also do these short form interviews where we'll set up a studio, we'll come up with a prompt and we'll ask people to respond in 25 words or less. We, um, you know, we shoot a black and white portrait. We add their quote over the top of it. And by the end of a day, you know, actually, if you're on the website, scroll up to the menu at the top. You can sure. see some of it uh, or go to the home page. Just click on the square uh, black and white book there. Yeah. So you can you can click on that that upper right hand corner, the black and white portrait of the woman. Oh, I'm sorry. You want to hit Project yeah, right Sanctuary? There. Project Sanctuary. Yeah. And then scroll down a little bit. And you, so so you'll see there in the course of a couple of days, we gathered a whole body of work there. In this case, we, we just asked people, uh, what do you want people to understand? And these are the responses. But I did this at the intersection of 38th and Chicago, where George Floyd was killed in 2020. I set up this little studio and I just asked people, what do you want to say? simply as a way to listen, simply as a way to hear what was on uh, on the community's heart. Uh, and again, to say, I see you, I hear you, and you matter. So that was my first venture out during the pandemic. And we realized that there were ways we could do it. We could mask ourselves. We could stay at a distance. We could still do the work that we wanted to do to talk about some of these important social issues and stay safe in a pandemic. So that's when we decided to leave. So our goal this time um, was to dig in a little bit deeper and wade into the most challenging social issues that we're facing as a country. And so we went to, um, you know, we went to Mississippi and talked about um, Confederate statues. We went down into Louisiana to talk about land loss. We went along the border to talk about um, immigration issues. And and always with an eye, I mean, these are really complicated issues, right? right? And they're super heated politically. But we went to these places to interview people, always with an eye on finding folks who were looking for creative solutions to our most challenging issues. People who believed that something better was possible and were doing, uh, you know, some really creative work on the ground to try to make that happen. So since we left in... Uh, in October of last year, we've driven 40, 43,000 miles. It's not been a straight line. It's not been an efficient path, but we, we go where the, where the doors open. You know, we look for opportunities where people want to have these conversations. Uh, and that leads us there. And what doors have opened for you? Like where have people invited you? Have you seen places? Do you go to places where there's conflict or things that are happening in the news? Yeah, you know, uh, like like Arizona is a great example in, down along the border uh, all of January. So I'm from Minnesota. Je uh, Minnesota is a bad place to be living in a trailer in January. So clearly we're looking for places in the south. Uh, I'm not foolish. Um, but uh, I had a friend from high school. Actually, it was a person I didn't know in high school, but we've reconnected. Um, 
And she does a lot of advocacy work down along the border. She she works with a, a small nonprofit called Voices from the Border uh, that that tries to make uh, an impact in some of the things that are going on down there. And she said, hey, if you want to come down here and have some of these conversations, I can connect you. You know, I can hook you up because I always I always need an advocate like that in a community. If I want to have those conversations, being from the outside, I don't know who to talk to. I don't know the right connections. I don't know how to how to break through the noise of their busy schedules. But with an with an advocate like India, um, India Aubrey is her name. Um, she was able to connect me with folks down there. So we talked to asylum seekers. We talked to activists, but also talked to border patrol agents. Uh, people who were who were working on economic issues, ranchers down there. So really, again, try to cast a broad net to hear um, hear these various perspectives. Because of course, no single person has a lock on the truth. You know, no no single person has a full understanding of everything that's going on. But if I talk to a rancher who comes at it from this direction, and a border patrol agent from over here, and an advocate. Uh, and an activist from over here, you start to put those things together and you start to get a, a fuller picture of what's going on in the world. As it happened, we were down there um, at, at the transition of, of presidential power when, when Biden took office. And of course, one of his uh, more uh, immediate and controversial choices was to stop construction of the border wall. Um, we happened to be uh, we happened to find the spot where the construction stops just wow. east of Nogales the wow. day that construction halted. You know, had we gone there the day before, I'm sure we wouldn't have been able to get to the site because there would have been work crews there and they would have held us at a distance. But we went there the day that construction ceased. There was nobody there. Well, there were a couple of guys for the contractors who were guarding the equipment that was idled and parked. But otherwise, it was just us standing where the fence went from a 30-foot metal barrier to four strands of barbed wire wow that's incredible. nobody else around and so for me that's historically and socially that's kind of hallowed ground and so the opportunity to be in those sorts of spaces and just reflect and just bear witness and just listen to what's going on in the community is really rich for me and it almost seems like that's the goal of this these projects is to break down those barriers so there you are a barrier that divides humanity for a variety of different reasons cultural ethnic linguistic and there it's gone like and that's a that's a that's a that's a much more dangerous place like you talk about uncomfortableness or being uncomfortable why are we so comfortable with barriers between people is it just more safe do people feel more safe or why should we embrace the what's uncomfortable yeah, you know, I think it's really true. We do that. I mean, we do that as a nation, but we do that individually as well. We put up uh, defenses. We put up barriers to protect ourselves. But um, and, and I'm not saying that this is a universal analogy, but in that process, in this interpersonal process, when we put up those barriers to protect ourselves, sure, you do keep yourself safe from a certain amount of harm. But in the process, you also eliminate the potential for deep human connection. And so I think in that in that notion of trying to uh, protect ourselves, we pay a really high price for that in our um, in our disconnection from other human beings. Yeah, you're totally disconnected. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's it. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, so you are traveling. So you were in what other 
places have you been to or environments where you've learned uh, so many different angles about uh, human events? Yeah, you know, we, like I say, we were in Mississippi and we were talking about um, Confederate monuments. And, you know, I recognize that uh, being a northern uh middle-aged white guy myself to come down into Mississippi and start exploring some of these things. Sometimes there's nothing less welcome than an outsider coming in and telling you how you should do things. Well, of course, that's not my goal. My goal is not to come anywhere and tell people how to do things. My goal is to come places and, and listen and learn. Um, so we actually, but, but of course, Confederate monuments have been in the news a lot lately. And and they're they're rallying points for political uh, right Charlottesville right Charlottesville yeah Charlottesville I've been to Charlottesville too shortly after Heather Heyer was killed there um, I don't remember the year several years ago now 2017 it was during Trump right 2017 20 yeah still symbolically right. important you know something like that yeah yeah um, if I remember right that that Robert E Lee statue was just recently removed right yeah. So that was what the whole thing was about. The white supremacists came out uh, against the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. Yeah. Right. And so we, you know, uh, Oxford, Mississippi, again, I had some connections there. I had some folks that I knew there and they have two Confederate monuments, uh, prominent Confederate monuments in town. One of them was at on, on the campus of the University of Mississippi. Uh, the second one is right in front of their uh, courthouse. Oxford is the, the, the county seat for Lafayette County if I'm remembering right. Um, so the one on campus, they first recontextualized, they put a little plaque down at the bottom of it, explaining some of the history. Then they decided that they wanted to relocate it. They didn't tear it down. Uh, they relocated it to a Confederate um, cemetery that was on campus, a less central place. Um, in uh, at, at the courthouse, uh, they had voted, the, the County Board of Supervisors voted to keep the monument standing where it was. So we simply went to that monument on the courthouse lawn and set up our studio and asked people, what, um, what is this, mon what does this statue mean to you? You know, and we just, we just listened and I didn't know if that would be welcome. I didn't know if people would participate. I didn't know if I'd get beat up. I mean, I'm being a little flippant, but I didn't, I didn't know. Um, but we wanted to go there and see, and as it turned out, people had, you know, a very reasonable response to it. Uh, people were willing to talk. Um, I think we had 37 people uh, share their stories. And um, and then we also did some long form interviews in the area as well while I was there. Now, are you filming? Are you video filming? Or are you just taking pictures of those interviews or audio? Yeah, um, I'm just, I'm not a video guy. And if I had more capacity or if I had a crew with me, I think it would be really interesting. But we, I'm, you know, I'm trained and, and uh, steeped in the tradition of still photography. And so we we do the recorded audio interview uh, and then I do a still portrait. And when you're talking face to face with these people, how long do they want to talk? Are you finding them very voluble or what uh, what's the average duration of these conversations? Yeah, you know, like you, I tell people it's going to be about an hour. And sometimes that means it's a little less. Sometimes it means a little bit more. Um, but, but, uh, we don't ever run out of things to say. That's right. Sure. People want to talk. And so, I mean, it is, I mean, I think just having somebody to sit down and talk with is therapeutic, cathartic, 
psychologically, you know, you can talk to another human being who's listening. Just that is, uh, you know, these days is so vitally important. I mean, what uh, what's it like when you see through their lens? What I mean, you talk about what are the universals? Do you see these kind of universal traits in humanity when you see when you've accumulated that many interviews? Yeah, I mean, we. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of where to go with that. You know, it the the universal trait for for myself is an awareness of how much I don't know. You know, I like to. I have this exercise. In fact, it's 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 in the introduction of the book that I that I wrote. It's a little exercise, um, and I'll tell you, I'm I'm really there. Get it in the camera. I'm really sensitive to understanding the current visual of this. I've I've got my my All right, your finger, finger and my thumb uh, in a circle, and I I have come to understand that that uh, can be a white supremacist circle. I am reclaiming it for other purposes. Okay, good. <laughs> It is, I, I will uh, clearly state it's not that, but this is an exercise I do with little kids. I say, make a small circle with your with your thumb and, and forefinger. Now imagine that all of the knowledge that you've ever had, everything that you've ever experienced is contained in that little circle. Clearly, um, you know more than that, but but using that as, as a symbol, now show me how big the circle would have to be to contain all of the knowledge that's ever been uh, known in the entire universe you know and the kids laugh and they stretch their arms out wide and they say oh you can't even make a circle that big and i said that's exactly what i try to remember every time i go into an interview with somebody because when i'm sitting down with somebody you know our circles might overlap a little bit you know i might be a parent and they might be a parent or i'm a man and they're a man or i'm an artist and they're an artist but i also know that there are some things in their circle that i've never experienced before and my goal when I sit with these folks is to see if I can't make my circle a little bit bigger, to see if I can't hear some things that are going to share some knowledge with me so that I can have a little bit bigger understanding of the world. And so when you talk about universal themes, um, you know, that that that's one of them that I sense in myself. The other is that. Um, especially now in our society, we're so quick to jump into that contention. We're so quick to go directly to that rawest, most difficult moment. Um, and, and I say in the book that we, we jump right into the fire and then we get surprised when we get burned. You know, these things never go well. We never navigate them well. But what we forget to do is invest the time and the energy in building a foundation in starting a relationship, in beginning a conversation that can get us there. But we just start out with those most contentious issues and, and we haven't got the foundation and the bandwidth to be able to navigate it well. Yeah, it's something about the political parties. There's something about this constant duality and inability to see commonality too, I think, in people that yeah. the black versus white, Republican versus Democrat, left versus right, blah, blah, blah. Well, so, there's a, let me let me just jump on that for a second, uh, William, and say um, there's a there's a couple that I interviewed and and I share their story in Portraits of Peace. It's Fred and Judy Barron, and they're Holocaust survivors, and they were in Bergen-Belsen uh, concentration camp together. And Fred tells this story uh, about the fact that Bergen-Belsen was not at the front. 
you know, there was not active combat going on there. So because of that, the the guards and the soldiers who were um, who were confining them there, they had their families living with them. And, and so they would live just outside of the fence. And Fred said that they could look through the through the fence and they could see these soldiers uh, interacting with their spouses. And they were they were good they, from from all appearances. They looked like good husbands see them interacting with their children and, and they looked like good parents but then they would turn on the inmates and treat them uh like animals and i thought but one thing that really struck me about that conversation is that fred could see any bit of humanity or uh ex exhibit any sort of grace for those people who were essentially trying to put him to death and i think in in our current climate there when we decide somebody is bad we can only see what's bad about them you know it's confirmation bias we will right. we will work overtime to find other things that show how bad those people are and we will conveniently neglect any evidence that shows that they might be human or that they might be reasonable and for me that ability of fred to see any shred of humanity in his adversaries um is, is a remarkable show of grace and humanity yeah we and we've also kind of caricaturized people too i think that the that this project you're involved in really chose like the common humanity or the human just the inherent humanity of a human being you know once yeah, we listen to right. it we, 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 we attach a label uh and and nothing else matters you know we we fill in all of the blanks of what else we need to know about that person whether it's true or not based on that single uh, two-dimensional label right it's something about the human condition it's just easier for us going day to day to just figure out a label that's you okay moving on you know instead yeah. of kind of having a more holistic kind of view so the title of the book is portraits of peace searching for hope in a divided america when it's being published september 21st correct yeah that's right and the, where's the best place to get it uh, you can get it anywhere you buy books. You know, you can go to the big ones if you want. You can go to Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, IndieBound. Uh, Broadleaf Books is the publisher. You can go right to their website. Uh, you can also walk into any independent bookstore where you like to get books. You can say the name of the title uh, and they'll be able to pre-order it for you. And then your other two books you say are self-published. Where are those available at your website? Yeah, those are just on the website. Uh, a piece of my mind.net, or like you said, the acronym APOMM. Piece of my mind, piece of my mind.net, APOMM. NET. And again, the title of the book is Portraits of Peace Searching for Hope in a Divided America. Thank you so much, John Noltner, N O L T N E R. Appreciate it. Well, one more yeah. thing. Where's the social media? People want to reach out to you. Or contact you. Do you have email or is the contact information on your oh, website? Oh, yeah. If you go to the website, there's a contact page. You can send me a note. There's also links to all of our social media. We're most active on Instagram, um, APOMM Stories. Uh, you can just go to uh, Facebook, A Piece of My Mind, P E A C E, um, and uh, Twitter, A Piece of My Mind One. Really fascinating. Good, really great work. So kudos to you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time, John. Yeah, it's great to talk with you, William. Thanks All for right. having me. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye -bye. So that's.